a lot of brand strategy advice is usually things like do this focus on differentiation do why look at liquid death but in reality brands have many life stages and need to focus on different aspects in each of those stages and that's exactly what i'm diving into today with james herman it's a very interesting episode so buckle up and let's talk branding hey steph i'm real good cool well uh james could you quickly introduce yourself Sure. Hello, my name's James. Uh, I'm from New Zealand uh, and I am formerly a, a, a strategic planner in the advertising business. And for the last 10 years, I've been uh, the founding partner at a company called Previously Unavailable here in New Zealand. And we work with uh, a ton of companies, uh, innovative companies, people that are bringing new things into the world. And we help them with everything from brand strategy to brand design to product design, innovation strategy, a uh, ton of other stuff like that. Um, and I'm also uh, someone who has spent uh, 15 years or so uh, really interested in advertising and marketing effectiveness. And I do a lot of work in that space too. Love that. I've checked out the website um, and like some really interesting work there on, on pre previously unavailable. So definitely uh, we could talk about that a little bit more later down the line. But um to start, I sometimes uh, bring back this painful category of definitions. And oh. since you are a writer, I'm sure you're you're up for it. <laughs> um, like, what what is a brand for you? Yeah, I think like at its you know at its best, a brand is uh, the kind of s a really simple idea that's a, that's at the heart of a company. And it informs everything that that company does and everything that every decision that that company makes. Um, and brand is obviously often externalized through things like, you know, logos and visual identities and advertising and these sorts of things. Um, but brands are at their best when they're, you know, they're an idea that's really at the heart of a business. Um, and, and that the, the, exter the externalization of the brand is just reflective of what's truly going on kind of inside the company or what the company's genuine sort of point of view on the world is, um, their, genu their genuine kind of their values and what they're trying to do and the way that they're trying to do it. Um, and so it should be something that's right there kind of really at the center of an organization um, and then brought to life in a way that's kind of engaging and and you know stands out and uh and 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 represents that company at its best mm, interesting and like just just a small side tangent but uh, i've been i've been thinking about this myself uh, as i'm like doing a i'm preparing a like a teaching course at university here and one of the things that actually came up that was interesting to me was when i'm looking at like what is a brand and like these definitions is that you have these brands that were indeed this idea lives and then it expresses themselves but you also have a lot of brands that are basically just like conceptually like just invented like you know unilever has probably like a, a 20 or 100 brands that aren't really like from yeah. that core like how do you feel about those and like have you ever worked with one of those and like how do you see a difference in in the way of working yeah, totally. I think it's a really good point. So when you're working within <clears throat> like a, you know, house of brands, like a massive consumer goods uh, ca uh, company like 
the likes of Unilever or Procter & Gamble, um, then you're using brand in a slightly different way. Like it's not, you know, your, your organization is governed at sort of a different level, kind of above where all of those brands sit, right? So the brand is probably more what it, it kind of was at the very sort of beginning of branding where it's kind of a, it's a trust mark, right? It's uh, it's mm. something which um, is there to build a sense of kind of familiarity with um, and trust in the quality of of the product and and kind of who it's come from, um, as opposed to the kind of culture of the company itself. So when you're in a sort of you know mono brand culture, one a company that's built around just one brand. Then, uh, then it's easier to <clears throat> to do what I was talking about before, which is kind of orient the entire business around that that idea and that set of values and that direction. Whereas when you're in a big multi-brand organization, you know that that's that's a little harder to do because teams are usually they're working within a larger organizational structure. So, so yeah, I think those organizations probably do think about branding in a slightly more not superficial, but it's kind of a, you know, it's something, it's something to really send a signal to the consumer um, about uh, the, the product and, and, and it's, it's kind of point of view on the world, I guess, as opposed to the whole organization. And that's kind of fine. Too. That's, that's fine, too. I sort of, for me, it's kind of, it's more, more meaningful in, um, in those more, you know, those companies that are centered around around one brand. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I do think it's actually interesting what, what the point that you bring up about like it might be actually the case because I've worked for for both types of companies, and in like I do feel that sometimes it is harder when it's like not breeding in the whole organization in a way that it does sometimes with these more one to one where where the brand is the story and the story is how you tell it, and there's no no complexity there. So I think in a way it's like almost. A, a, like let's say a caution point about brand architecture and and how you how you set up those things if you still are able to of course like not all companies uh, do that and and looking at your webs like I, I mean the website i i do see like the the type of companies you're working with a lot are typically more of these i, I guess smaller brands or am i mistaken no, not at all. I mean, one of our areas of specialty is <clears throat> is in working with startup, very early stage companies, um, and sometimes they're right at the beginning of their journey, so they haven't even created their product yet. They're literally just an idea, and we're helping that idea kind of develop and eventually come to life. And sometimes they're at more of a scale up stage, so they're still an earlier stage business, but they've been in market a few years, and they they need to understand how their brand can can help them sort of go to that next level of scale. Mm. Um, but in both of those cases, you know, they are still early stage companies um, that do tend to be um, smaller in terms of number of people in the companies and revenue and those sorts of things. We also work with the, the biggest, you know, the, the biggest of the big companies with their, you know, usually with their sort of product and innovation teams, um, which is a sort of slightly different discipline. But um, but yes, you know, one of our sort of key areas is those smaller organizations. Mm. Yeah, and, and like, I think I, I also noticed that in, in some of the case studies that you were describing in the book, like there's some really cool, like interesting brands, like the one, uh, I think it's non-alcoholic beverages, uh, like yeah. AF it's called. Hey. What, 
where it's like these types of brands that they can be very bold because like they have that personality and they can do that and very often what you actually see is that those types of brands get bought up by the bigger ones because they can't really do that inside of a bigger organization create that type of brand which which is kind of interesting to me but like your point about the life stages that's actually what i would love to like circle this conversation about i think it could be interesting if we like we walk through the different stages because that's also something you describe in your book about future demand which is highly recommended i'll put it in the show notes um but maybe like let's walk through the different life stages of of these brands and like let's start at the beginning what are the needs there and and like how are they different from from later stages and how are you working with like really id to startup to market yeah for sure i mean i think like if we go right from the very start so so if you're sort of pre-market you know you're 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 not you know you're you're developing your product and your company and your brand and 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 you're not even really out in the market yet or you're at a very 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 early stage i tend to think of brand as sort of brand with a small b as opposed to brand with a big b um and what i mean by that is is at that stage of a company everything should be reasonably malleable um and by the way i'm talking about innovative startup companies as opposed to just small businesses that are in a um in a category that's a mature category and you know um uh but when you're a, when you're an innovator you know the very start of your life stage is really it's it's figuring out what's going to kind of resonate how to tell your story and talk about things sort of getting to a point of having some confidence that there's product market fit um, and those sorts of things and so at the start I think you know the brand should sort of be as malleable as the product often is where, where you're iterating you're kind of trying different things out you're um, you're reacting to kind of feedback that's coming coming you know back to you and you're you know at a product level you're kind of changing and adjusting and and it should be the same with brand at that very very early stage it's kind of like okay have we got you know let's have as clear a possible as possible a kind of definition of of our mission and what we're setting out to do um but let's be pretty malleable about exactly how that shows up and that's right at the start then then when you sort of get kind of if you get to market then so starts the sort of journey of slightly more kind of you know capital b branding where it becomes a little bit more important to be a bit less kind of fluid with it all and um and start to lay down the things that are going to stick around for a long time um <clears throat> but if you're bringing a new you know particularly a innovative new product to market brand in in that early stage tends to be you know the the point of branded marketing in large part is to help people understand what it is that you make um so what you're bringing into the world and and if you're an innovative company or a you know a, a, a unique product there's often going to be very very little um existing understanding of what you do or what your product is or what your category is even um and so it really is about sort of bringing clarity to what it is that you do explaining what your kind of product does in the most simple 
and kind of normal language, human way possible. Um, and hopefully doing that, you know, in a way that's engaging and, and, um, and has a bit of personality and all that kind of stuff. But you're really focused on like our first job is just to, you know, get that first, first little audience of ours across what it is that we're actually making. Um, then as you begin to scale, um, a couple of things happen. So you become, you know, a, people are a little bit more aware of you. Maybe they've heard about you and kind of broadly what you do. Um, and sometimes you, there's some competition that comes into the mix as well. Mm. They're doing similar things and all the rest of it. And it becomes a little bit less about the what and a little bit more about the how. So, you know, once once we've kind of got the world across what it is that we make, especially if there are competitors, it's a little bit more about how we do that or how we're different, right? Um, and so branding becomes a little bit more about uh, differentiation, about kind of communicating not just that we make this thing, but how we make it in a way that's different or better. Um, and then as you reach maturity, where you've got, you know, a category that's very well understood by consumers, you've got product that everyone knows what it is, You've probably told people how it's different a plenty in the past. Um, hmm. And there's lots and lots of competition that are probably make, making things where they're very, very similar to one another. Then it becomes a little bit more about the why, um, a little bit more about what that brand's kind of point of view on the world is, that brand's personality, that brand's kind of, yeah, what they stand for and, and connecting more on a sort of an emotional basis. Um, and so, you know, I'm sort of massively sort of oversimplifying things by <laughs> putting it in those terms. And of course, at the start, you know, when we're engaging people with the brand and, and, you know, what we make, we still want to do, um, we still want to bring some emotion into that. We still want people to connect with us in an emotional way, not just a purely rational way. And of course, when we're a large organization, we still want to, have a really clear link back to the product and what it does and what we're doing but we want the center of gravity to be a little bit more kind of emotional because it's 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 not going to be the product probably isn't going to be what differentiates us it's going to be mm. um it's going to be less rational than that um so that's how i kind of think about you know the role of brand at different stages and 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 how a brand communicates and what it should sort of focus in on as at, at different stages interesting like i think one of the things that i would love to uh, dive a bit deeper in is i the moment where i think like i i've been a lot at these types of companies where you go from from like you have a certain scale you you've reached some kind of product market fit you feel like you're a bit more mature in the market but you're still like way off from like being the well-known dominant brand like could even be like two three percent market share it's a yeah. lot for from where you came from but it's yeah. nothing in comparison to where you want to go there usually like a lot of companies there are still very much in that in that like rational convincing mindset that they learned early on like let's talk about our unique product and how we're doing category category creation and you know all the the tropes that come with especially in tech the, mm. these types of things but then switching to that like emotional storytelling 
buzzwords, whatever, you know, mm. the idea of like trying to get more attention, not based on rational arguments about what you're doing. Uh, like you have any ideas on internally how to get an organization to shift to that? Because that's really like, I've been trying to help other companies do that as well. And I, I see that as a big challenge because often this mindset is baked into the organization. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is what the future demand kind of principle and book is, is really about that, <clears throat> that, uh, at, at any market, you've got two types of demand. You've got people that are in the market and ready to buy now, and you've got people who aren't in the market just yet, but are going to come into it at some point later. Um, and we've got two really important jobs to do with those two audiences. Um, and so what companies, what's often in companies' best interest to do right at the start and when they're at very kind of, you know, low levels of market share is actually just to try and win the customers that are in the market right now because there's more of them than their existing customer base. So they can sort of, you know, they can do a lot of, of the, the types of marketing, <coughs> which does tend to be a bit more rational, but less creative, but less emotional. Because if, if you're in the market looking for something, you actually do want the rational information on it. You do want to know the pros and cons of it. You do you know, want to know how it stacks up to competitors and how much it costs and where I can get it from and all of that rational stuff. If you're in the market looking for the solution to your problem or choosing um, one, uh, one product from a category of products, then that information is very useful to you. Um, if you're the other, like if you're, you know, you're not in the category because you just bought from the category last month and you're not going to until again, until six months time, or, you know, for whatever reason, you're not ready to buy right now, but you're going to come into the category later. You're actually not very interested in the, all the rational information. Like you've got way other, way more important things on your mind than reading through and consuming functional information about a product that you're not, you have no interest in buying right now. So that's where the shift kind of to more emotional, creative uh, marketing kind of that's that's the reason that we do that. We do that to engage an audience that, you know, earn attention from an audience that doesn't care about our product category right now because they're not ready to buy. And we're trying to implant kind of positive memories about us. So when they come into the category in six months time or whatever, they remember us and they have good feelings about us. And they so they gravitate towards us. And so for those companies that are at that point where they've sort of got, they've grown to, as you say, sort of two or 3% market share, they've probably done that good, that great job of kind of really um, attracting all the people who are in the market. Um, and the next step for them to grow is to, is to build that future, that future demand, like talk to those people who are going to come into the category later, because they're going to be the ones who are really going to, um, you know, drive the future growth and drive the path towards, you know, higher levels of market share. And, um, and if we wait till they come into the market to kind of introduce ourselves, then, um, and another company's kind of introduced themselves before, beforehand, they're more likely to gravitate towards them, towards our competitor. And so there's this kind of, you know, that by showing sort of people the maths of, you know, okay, you've reached a point where actually you need to talk to a bigger audience and you need to talk to them in a different way. Um, that's, I guess, the argument that I use to help companies understand why they should be targeting more broadly, 
communicating more emotionally, have, have a brand and, you know, marketing that really stands out and cuts through and engages people that aren't in the market right now. Um, all of those things that we think about as more, more sort of classic brand building marketing than the mm. sort of sales activation or performance marketing side of things. Hmm. There, there are some like really interesting brands, like I think also on, on, on some case studies of what you have done, but like I, liquid, liquid death comes to mind as one of those examples where I feel like they, they kind of got out the gate swinging, like brand building that is then, uh, instead of taking that route, obviously probably also linked to the category where like, yeah. it's hard to do that, but like, do you feel that it's possible to just like start with that like that type of brand building mindset from the get-go rather than than like take that more yeah I mean, I think liquid is a really interesting case because i think they've been you know uh, i think they they are a massive outlier right um they uh they don't represent what the normal path of a business is and it's awesome because like go them it's really it's really cool what yeah. they've done um i think it would be very very difficult for other founders to try to replicate or to try to learn too much from them um because i think what they were doing from the outset was being themselves right and this mm. is this is actually you know going back to that that idea at the heart of a company like when that's really at its most authentic is when the brand reflects what, you know, the personality basically of the founder. Um, and so another good example of that is Patagonia, right? That that brand is really an extension of uh, Yvonne Chouinard's, um, like that's his, his values and his point of view and everything that he's driving for in terms of saving our home planet. So that comes across as very authentic. Now with Liquid Death, you know, really different types of people to the Patagonia founder, they were funny, creative people who were, mm. you know, out there who loved kind of doing things that were really kind of, I don't know if you'd call them outrageous, but like things that just were really counter counterculture and, and sort of defiant and rebellious and really funny. That was just that that's who they are. Right. And so they can do that. They're just expressing themselves in a way that's really, really authentic. I think when brands that aren't innately like that, like their founders aren't innately, you know, rebellious, hilarious, wildly creative kind of people, it's really, really hard to kind of replicate that. Um, so I think they uh, are a, as I say, sort of a massive outlier, um, and b, they were just doing what any kind of founder should really be doing, which is kind of, you know, how do we how do we make this as authentic an expression of ourselves as we kind of possibly can? Um, and there aren't many who would take as many risks as, you know, as comfortably as the liquid death team have. Um, and if they did take them, they'd probably get them all wrong. Um, <laughs> because the liquid death team were, you know, highly experienced risk takers. They sort of knew how to do that in a way that really has struck gold for them. Yeah, totally. And I think, like it's as you said, like it's not 
there, we usually do this a lot in in marketing worlds. Like, ah, look at Nike or look at uh, some some examples. But like, that doesn't mean it would work for everyone. And and also, like as you said, like it's it's also a lot about how the founders will will well deal with it. Yeah. Basically, I um, think the the other thing about Liquid Death is they were making a product in an extremely mature market. You know, there's nothing. Mm. I mean we can stretch and say putting water in a can is, is innovative. Um, but uh, I mean, I don't think it, I mean, I think it's a really nice sort of take on water, but it's by no means as innovative as the companies that, that sort of we work with. Um, and, and so they didn't have to go through that stage of explaining to people what water is and what it's benefits yeah. are, right? And so they had a sort of massive head start. They went into a category and said, how do we kind of massively disrupt this category and just mm. do something that's really, really different? Um, and and they did have, you know, I don't know if they still do, but in the early days they did have messaging, which was around, you know, it's in a can because, you know, we don't like plastic. Um, and and so they did a bit of that messaging that was sort of wrapped in up, uh, wrapped in all the creative things that they did. Um, but they didn't have to do what most innovators need to do, which is actually educate the market first up on what the hell they've made. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm wondering. I think, I think it will inevitably lead us a bit to the question that was very, like, uh, let's say, prominent in the last weeks on on LinkedIn, on distinctiveness versus differentiation, because, like, in your in your let's say your your plotting of the life stages and the role of brand you you talk about going from what to how to why mm. and the the why part like often it, it it triggers like the the simon sinek thing and the whole purpose thing and like is that what we should be focused mm -hmm. on or is that way like has that been overshoot like it's more yeah. about purpose than than it is about differentiation versus distinctiveness actually but like yeah. curious about your take on on that I, I think so i mean i i think that purpose has been sort of massively overdone so obviously right mm -hmm. uh, i think also we've um conflated purpose in the simon cynic um you know definition with um uh, with doing things that are socially or environmentally very good. Um, and when, you know, when, when Sinek talked about, you know, in his original presentation, when he talked about Apple, you know, per the purpose wasn't an environmental or a social one. Um, it was just a, it was about, you know, it was about a love of creativity and creative people and sort of, you know, that was nothing to do with what we've come to view as purpose, which is all about kind of doing something almost sacrificially good in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I love companies that do things that are sacrificially <laughs> good in the world. Like, it's awesome. And I think those companies, and again, I just sort of go back to Patagonia is probably the, you know, the, the true exemplar of this. When it's authentic, when the whole company is genuinely built around this idea of saving our home planet then it's great and it works like nothing else it's perfect when it's a company that's ultimately not really about that like their board is not really about that their executive leadership's not really about that but marketing would like them to be about that because they think that consumers would be drawn to that then it kind of all falls over right and so 
purpose, I mean, when I say um, focus on the why, it's not so much, it's not about kind of purpose and the way that we've come to define it in, in our industry. Um, it's, it's just going to, you know, not what we make and how we make it, but what's our point of view on the world. And our point of view could, could be nothing to do with solving the environment or, or social issues or any of that kind of stuff. It just could be a really clear kind of point of view. And I think like if you, you know, go to Liquid Death, you know, I think they've, you know, they, one of the coolest things I heard about Liquid Death was that the way they define their target audience is that it's anyone with a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> so that's a really lovely definition of a target audience and their, their, their purpose. I mean, I don't know, don't even know if they have a purpose statement or whatever, but, but you can see that their driving force as people is to kind of entertain the world, <laughs> you know, is to kind yeah. of put buzzy things into the world that, you know, let's kind of have fun with calling a product liquid death and, um, and saying murder your thirst and making all of this kind of radical advertising. Let's, they, you know, you can tell that they, that's where they really get their thrills from. Um, and they've oriented their company around kind of doing that, which is awesome. Mm. So I think that's just as valid a, a kind of a why as, you know, as Patagonia's. Yeah. Like when, when shifting from, from this idea of harvesting existing demand, like people that are in market to going towards future demand and trying to reach those audiences, one part we've already talked about is like the messaging and how you present it, how you express yourself. Like that's, I think an evolution you have to go through as a company. But I think another big aspect here is the, the channels you use the money you spend and, and where you spend it basically to get to that broader reach. And I think that's also a big hurdle because very often like companies are struggling to, to find the right channels to get that reach, but also then to prove the ROI on those channels because it's a totally different mindset than just like, you know, tracking people that uh, clicked some, like, typed something in Google, which is very one-to-one -one because they're in market and they're giving signals. Any ideas yeah. on on that like and and especially i think what's interesting for the listeners is how modern brands and, and new channels play a role in in that whole brand building space going from performance marketing or capturing demand yeah so i think you know classically we think of performance marketing as being digital um and 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 being highly targeted so we're going to really kind of you know get down to a very tight definition of who we're trying to sell to and really tightly target them. Um, and and brand building is, is thought of as using above the line channels and sort of talking to much, much broader audiences. Um, and we need to be doing both of those things, but they're not necessarily channel specific, right? So mm. you can do performance marketing on linear television if you want to, you know, and companies have been doing it for decades, like direct response TV, which is pretty rational. Um, it's about driving a, a direct response to the ad. It's it's price and product and call here to buy now and that sort of stuff. That's performance marketing, you know, that's doing exactly that. Um, and likewise, you can use social media or digital marketing to do brand building. You can target really, really broadly if you buy just for reach as opposed to, you know, buying a very narrow target. You can go out and reach lots of people and you can do stuff that is much more emotional um, and much more creative if you choose to. So so I think the 
um, the, the sort of def defining brand and performance in terms of channels is, is probably, mm. you know, unhelpful. Um, and the art of channel planning, the art of media planning is about saying where, where is, you know, if we want to target broad, where is there a broad audience for our brand? And that might be on LinkedIn, it might be on television, it might be on billboards, you know, who knows, it's going to vary by brands and by category and by consumers that we're targeting. And so that's what the whole discipline of sort of media and channel planning is there to do, right, is to kind of figure mm. out where is that big audience going to be. Um, and and so it's it's difficult to kind of go, you know, use TV or just use <laughs> or whatever TikTok. <laughs> yeah it's going to be really different for for each and so you know and it's the same for performance marketing like some performance marketing TikTok is absolutely the place to be other performance marketing you know is like direct response tv or radio might be actually a much better bet than than TikTok. and so again it just comes down to what the sort of variables are of the product and the category and the audience hmm. yeah and i think i mean it's it's probably the answer is somewhat the same as in like the the same thing goes for often like we're looking into sidestepping paid advertising because you know a lot of these companies scaling like they don't want to or they don't have the big budgets and what you often see i think especially with these challenger brands is that the the other route is let's say let's get as much like pr or influencers or let's get people talking about us and I think it's definitely an interesting route, but it's also like not the easiest route to take. Like, I don't know, working with some of these more bolder brands that I can imagine have gotten PR, like what do you think about this route and, and how to look at it? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, going back to the budget thing, like if you don't have, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you don't have the money to, uh, to spend appropriately on marketing to grow, uh, then chances are you're not going to grow. So it, <laughs> it, it comes back to like, do you, I don't know, do you want to invest in growth or not? If you don't, if you're happy to stay where you are, then great. Like just keep sort of doing what you're doing. If you're, you know, if you imagine a company that makes $500,000 of revenue and so their marketing budget might be, 50 grand or something like that. And they want to get to a company that is, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue where their budget's going to be like $10 million or something like that. Right. That budget is going to scale up over time. Right. And so they're going to need to spend more and more to get there. And so, so there, the mindset has to be, we, you know, if we want to drive this top line growth, we need to also sort of commit to this kind of marketing spend growth because there's no way we can get to be, there's no $100 million company that spends 50 grand on marketing. That doesn't exist. So that, you're that's, the, that's the problem. I think there's this myth that a lot of companies, well, especially in tech, people believe that they can, you know, the whole idea about Tesla, not, yeah. not advertising. And we know it's not yeah. true because, you know, they, they have Elon Musk and they have a PR machine. So, but like, that is a big hard myth, actually. Yeah, it is. I mean, and again, I just say like there are always outliers in marketing and if we focus mm. too much on them, you know, um, and yes, like Facebook at the start, you know, not much or no money on kind of 
advertising, Google at the start, same, Tesla at the start, same. I mean, the question you've got to ask yourself is, are you really creating something that is such a kind of epoch-defining, incredible innovation as Larry and Sergey or Zuckerberg or, um, mm. or Elon Musk? And I mean, you know, the answer is, statistically, the answer is no, you are not. <laughs> You're creating something that is much, much, much more normal than that, which doesn't have any of the inherent virality of those companies. Mm. And so if you, if you try to create this, I mean, if you want to market that way, then your job is to create a product that is so extraordinary, not just good, not just better, not just really fucking good, but absolutely fucking so extraordinary that it's capable of growing without that marketing spend. Now, if you can do that, fantastic. Good on you, go and do it. But like, if you're not doing that, don't kid yourself that you are because it's like, because you're never going to get anywhere. And it's, uh, you know, those, those outliers are like, you know, they're like, um, they're like lottery winners. Like they don't, mm. you know, we, we think, you know, because someone wins the lottery every, every week, someone wins the lottery. So we think it must be really easy to win the lottery. Look, people do it every single week, right? The, the tr reality is it's fucking damn near impossible. <laughs> and that's the same when we read these kind of stories about these companies that have been meteoric rise and all the rest of it. Like, like most of them, it's a combination of like, you know, either like either product that's so extraordinary or it's a combination of kind of timing and luck and a whole bunch mm. of factors that are very hard to control for. Um, and usually what goes up comes down as well, by the way. And so a lot of those companies that are those rocket ship successes, you know, you look five years down the track and you find that they're either non-existent or, you know, nowhere near the, on the same trajectory as they were. So, so I think it's kind of like, it's important for, for marketers and for founders to sort of understand that there is, you know, if we look at the bulk, like the, the other 99.99999% of companies that aren't those ones that we've been talking about, right, there is kind of, there are some general rules. And one of those rules is if you want to grow, you need to spend at a competitive level to do that. And mm. yes, you can enhance the value of that spending by doing things that are really clever, really creative, kind of really go viral or kind of generate lots of PR attention. And yes, you absolutely should be doing those things, but, uh, but they need to be underpinned with a realistic and competitive level of spend. James, thank you so much for this. This was super interesting. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Steph. All right, that was it for my conversation with James Herman. As always, if you really like the show, please hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, and I hope to see you in the next show. Take care.